0: Pacifica Radio. This is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Maliha Razazan. Last month, a military coup took place in Sudan, barely two years after a popular uprising forced the removal of dictator Omar al-Bashir, who had ruled the country for 30 years with an iron grip with the support of the military and Sudanese Islamists. The 2019 protests was not able to exclude the military from national politics entirely. In August of that year, a power-sharing arrangement was reached among the military leaders, a coalition of groups and organizations called the Forces of Freedom and Change, and a joint ruling body named the Sovereign Council, which was established to govern the Sudan for a little over three years until elections could be held. Following last month's overthrow, Coup leader, General Borhan, declared the disillusion of the Sovereign Council as well as that of the transitional government of Prime Minister Hamdok. Meanwhile, across the Sudan, millions of people have engaged in protests, acts of civil disobedience and strikes to denounce the military power grab at the peril of their lives. Shahram Agamir spoke with Professor Khaled Madani and El sadiq El sheik about the recent coup in Sudan, disillusion of the country's embattled transitional government and the struggle for democracy and social justice in Sudan. Sadr al-Sheikh is the director of the Global Justice Programme at the Othering and Belonging Institute at UC Berkeley. Khalid Madani is an associate professor of political science and Islamic studies at McGill University and the author of the new book, Black Markets and Militants, informal networks in the Middle East and Africa. Professor Madani started by talking about the October 30th, the millions march against the military coup in Sudan.
1: Uh, with the October 30th uh, Millionia, or the uh, Millions March, or March of the Millions, millions of Sudanese came out in protest to the military coup of October. 25th, immediately organizing civil disobedience, and then, of course, organizing this huge March of the Millions, not only in Khartoum, of course, and what everyone was watching, Sudanese included, was to what extent would this protest against the coup encompass the entire country. And fortunately, we were able to quickly see that there were protests not only in Khartoum, but in the West, in Darfur. I always like to mention the regions in the northern state, eastern state, on the on the Red Sea, Darfur, Kurtufan, 25 cities at least, encompassing all of every single province in Sudan. So that is extremely important to emphasize in terms of what's going on. What happened, of course, in the context of this remarkable protest and mobilization was that the militias of Mohammed Dagalo Himeddi in particular, of course, immediately wreaked havoc and attacked the protesters. So in terms of the casualties, and al-Sadiq can chip in as well. well. Well, we cannot be certain because, as you know, one of the immediate things the military coup plotters did, Burhan and his uh, ilk, was to completely shut down the Internet. In fact, one of the most important slogans uh, that mobilized people uh, was to tell Borhan that you could close the internet, but we're going to come for you anyway. We're still going to prosecute you and we'll continue to protest against this coup and fight for civilian or transition to civilian democracy. In other words, there's no turning back. One of the most important and popular slogans, no turning back, was uh, chanted throughout a March of the Millions. So in terms of the casualties, unfortunately, we cannot be sure there, at least officially from what I've seen so far, about over 50 that have actually been killed and maybe 300 injured. Everyone knows that that is a very low count because of such little information is coming out. In addition to that, of course, the forms of torture, uh, not only sexual assault and rape and the cutting of hair, barbaric forms of human rights violations that sometimes don't get captured just in the figures of those who are detained and those who are injured. So that's really important. Another really crucial aspect about what is going on in terms of casualties is that as little as there is information with respect to Khartoum, the capital city, we know very little about what's going on in the provinces. I want to really emphasize that. We know, for example, there are greater violence that's being meted out in that four in the cities of Niala and Al-Fashir, that information is extremely hard to come by. And so I think that uh, fortunately, because of the desperation of the coup plotters and Emeti and the rapid support forces that he leads, their desperation to stamp out this mobilization and consolidate the rule of the military and their own rule, it looks like there are more casualties right now than in the early days of the revolution of 2018. And so I really would like to emphasize that. All of that is to say that we are really concerned that the international community and human rights organizations continue to focus on this. It's only today that we hear that the UN Commission for Human Rights has called for a special session. It's a little bit late in coming, but we need not only the UN Commission for Human Rights, but all human rights organizations to be directly involved in collecting information. We're all concerned that they're not doing enough to really, A, condemn the human rights violations but also sanction the perpetrators of this violence, both as a group in terms of the militia and also individuals. And that, of course, would include Himeti himself and Burhan. Sadiq, in order to understand
2: the military coup that ousted the civilian faction of the transitional government in Sudan, we need to go back at least three years to the protests that started in December 2018 and evolve into a mass uprising that resulted in dislodging of longtime despot Omar al-Bashir, the struggle that led to the formation of what has been described as a joint civilian and military transitional government in August 2019. Can you briefly describe this period of the uprising to us and give us a summary of what caused the protests also What are the key points of the agreement over the transition period? How did we end up with the military having such a significant role in ruling the country during this transition?
3: I think going back three years is not quite enough, but I will stick with the timeline because the protest of 2019 that started in December up to June of 2019. It actually was an extension of a long struggle of the Sudanese people, particularly from 2013. So it goes ups and down with a lot of killing. But since 2018 in December, the new emergence of a new type of social movement in terms of mobilization, organizing in a level of neighborhood and a level of city and the provinces, and they can use all type of social gathering spaces. Sudanese are very well known for being able to socialize in, in different spaces. Our youth utilize even the mosque to turn it against the Islamist. So what caused the protest was just the hegemony of two types of forces in Sudan. One, the Islamist doctrine that really was kind of pick and choose of what Islam means to people. And the second is the neoliberal policy that inflicted on the Sudanese people. And that caused, caused a lot of pain in wide sector of the society. So the collide of these two for a couple of years, plus the continuum of the civil war and genocidal act in the West and some of brutality in the West and other places. So all this combined that led to the protester to continue for a decade at least and to reach the boiling point in December 2018. And from that on, was so obvious that the regime of Omar al-Bashir will collapse. But that was invisible for most people outside Sudan. But for our people inside Sudan, they have this tenacity and resilience of, of how to organize. And when they felt that that point is nearby, intensified their work. And they started from the periphery rather than the capital city. And they came to strengthen their grip in their own kind of destiny. So we see that Adbara is a very important city in northeastern Sudan, which is one of the cities that is the headquarters of the railroad workers and a stronghold of the Sudanese Communist Party since the 1970s. But it also has a significant as a modern city that uh, is out in the periphery, so when Adbara leaning toward any direction, we say in Sudan that there is a general sentiment we lean toward that direction. So it was a very decisive movement that came from all corners of the Sudanese geographies towards the capital city, 26 states or cities. And the periphery rose up within the first week, and they just spread out like a fire. In terms of what, what are the key points of the agreement over the transition period, one of the funniest part of it is, by the way, it's not that long. It's, it's almost like two bits long. But one of them is that the declaration is called the Constitutional Declaration, that state of emergency in the country cannot be declared by the TMC. Transition Military Council, it has to be declared by the government, which is the first mistake the criminal general Hamid Diyamburhan did, which is declaring the state of emergency. They have no absolute right whatsoever to do so. The minute they did that is a clear military coup, because they did it in their capacity as the head of the Sudanese Armed Forces. They have no legitimacy whatsoever as a part of the transitional government itself, as a member of the Sovereign Council, they cannot declare the state of emergency. But that will take me to your third part of the question, uh, how we end up with the military having such a significant role in the country during the transition. We can go back and critique why and why not that's happened. But in the modern Sudanese experimentation towards democracy, fortunately or unfortunately, the armed forces played a key role. Maybe for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons that our country has been pledged by a lot of low-intensity and high-intensity civil wars, and that somewhat gave the military a kind of a main role in political life. And the second thing, also the army, the low-ranking officers, put a lot of pressure on the high-ranking generals, including Burhan and Hemeti, to side with our people. And if you recall, our people brought down another general within 24 hours between al-Bashir's departure and the TMC, the Transition Military Council, take over which is General Ibn Auf, people can insist on that that's the solution. So the army has to declare to side with the people to removing the dictator. So not only Bashir, but Ibn Auf as well. And that's what happened in that 24 hours. So how the pressure mounting from outside the country and in the absence of all the political institution, at least in Sudan at the time, that the army been able to position itself as a, as a key interlocker in the political development. And that's how to come be able to recognize that. Not necessarily most of the protesters did not. I'm one of them. We said we will agree, but we are reluctantly, we cannot trust the TMC Transition Military Council to be part of democratization. But the pressure was very mounting on the Sudanese elites from outside and regional power. One political party that keeps saying the things that and warning this could be a turning point is the Sudanese Communist Party when they even remove itself from the transitional government because of, yes, there is no trust in the military action of the transitional government.
2: Khaled, do you wanna, did, would you like to add anything to what Sader just said?
1: The coup that occurred on October 25th has been met with unanimous opposition in Sudan. All of the political parties, right and left, have uh, condemned it. All of the civil rights organizations, the two youth organizations have also condemned it. And of course, the Sudanese Professional Association has condemned it. It uh, goes without saying that the resistance Committee, the grassroots organizations and committees, both the resistance committees and the neighborhood committees. These are related but two different uh, forms of organizations at the grassroots everyone has condemned it, and that is important because that has also facilitated international condemnation. If there was somehow division of uh, the Sudanese at the political party level or at level of civil society, uh, there would have been um, less momentum for the international community, at least uh, verbally or in terms of their rhetoric, to condemn this uh, military coup, Burhan for for his intervention, and to insist that there should be a resumption towards a transition to a civilian democracy and a civilian government. So just to be clear, the United States has condemned this coup, the European Union, the African Union has kicked Sudan out of its organization. The United Nations, the Secretary General has come out with a a relatively strong statement, also insisting that uh, this coup is act of um, violation of human rights and of international law, and that there has to be a resumption of the transfer to power. Uh, Right now, for example, there is mediation of uh, the UN representative in Sudan, the Troika, Norway, the European Union, and the United States. Uh, In fact, there are a number of people mediating in addition to South Sudan, for example. And just today, I heard the Security Committee of the African Union has also begun the Uh, intervention. So I really wanted to emphasize the cohesiveness of the opposition against this military coup, not only in in Sudan, but at this point, at least, it seems also globally. That's something to keep in mind. In terms of the arrangements itself, just very quickly, I wanted to add to what al-Sadiq said. It's clear now that Burhan and his allies were not uh, intending to not only follow the agreement in, in good faith, the power-sharing agreement, but they had plotted from the very beginning to consolidate military uh, rule. Al-Sadiq mentioned the very important uh, period after the oust of Omar Bashir on April 11, 2019, following, of course, the historical sit-in that forced the military, Burhan and later Hemeti to push Bashir out. It was at that point that uh, Burhan and what we call his allies in the Intelligence Committee of the Sudan Arms Forces. As al-Sadiq noted, it's extremely important to distinguish these uh, particular clique or junta uh, associated with what we call uh, the Intelligence Committee of the Sudan Armed Forces from the mid- mid-ranking and, and lower-ranking lower rank and file of the Sudan Arms Forces. It was at this point that we should have known right away, and of course many, many Sudanese knew, uh, that the plot to consolidate military rule was already in the making. Burhan of course, called for a two-year transition to civilian democracy, after which there would be elections and he would oversee these elections. Um, And that is basically the same discourse he's doing now. If you notice, following the coup, he once again says, I'm going to extend the transition just a little bit. I'm going to promote a civilian government or appoint a civilian prime minister and work towards a civilian government that would oversee election. You see, it's the same rhetoric, the, the period right after April 11th. Uh, Very quickly after April 11th, what we saw, the reason he was not able to accomplish this was, of course, because of the mass civil disobedience in late May in Sudan that uh, brought the country to a halt. And also the reluctance at that time because of the massacre that happens later in June, the next month, June 3rd, in the sit-in where international actors and supporters pull back from supporting Burhan. It is at that point that he is able or was forced to make a compromise with the forces of freedom of change. And the arrangements, as you know, that you've just asked about had to do with the establishment of a sovereign council. It had to do, of course, with the rotating presidency, 21 months for a military leader. But then following that, the presidency would be rotated to a civilian leader. And finally, the establishment of a legislative assembly. All of that was something agreed upon by the forces of freedom of change that encompassed all of the political parties until the Communist Party exited. And of course, the professional associations, the two major youth organizations, and a network of civil society organizations. That's important to keep in mind, because um, what Sudanese are saying in their uh, millions now, of course, in opposition, is uh, the constitutional declaration upon which these arrangements were based have been completely contravened. Burhan, of course, is incredibly arguing that he's uh, only repealing some of the protocols of the constitutional declaration. He's repealed actually seven, two very important ones that we must talk about as well. And that is uh, his way of trying to put a fig leaf on this ridiculous claim that this is not a military coup, which, of course, no one in Sudan or outside of Sudan accepts. The unraveling of the constitutional declaration and these arrangements come, uh, I think al-Sadiq may agree, uh, with the signing of the Juba agreement on October 2020. It is following that where in Burhan and Hamdok led sovereign council and um, signed an agreement with the two insurgent organizations in that for the Justice and Equality Movement, led by Jabril and the Sudan Liberation Army, led by Mini Manawi, who signed the Juba Agreement. I would argue that it, it's really at this point that the really arrangement of August 2019 that uh, established the power sharing of Sovereign Council started to really unravel. And that was clear by the late 2020, when Burhan established something called the Transitional Partnership Council, that basically replaced or was sought to replace the executive power of the civilians and the, the proportion of civilians represented in this transitional government. And he did that very craftily by adding an extra president or representative to the Sovereign Council, who happened, by the way, to be the brother of uh, Abdurrahman the Dagalu, Himetti, and offering 25% of representation at the executive level in this council to the leaders of the two insurgent organizations that signed. One of them, Jabril, as you may know, actually was appointed to the very important post of the Minister of Finance in this transitional government before this military coup. Why is this point important? Is because by all accounts, this military coup was basically orchestrated by Hemeti, number one, and the two leaders of these insurgent organizations.
2: Can you just remind us? When you say Hamati, who he is, he's the head of the RSF, the
1: paramilitary forces. Can you tell us who that is? Sure, absolutely, Yeah. Uh, absolutely. I keep forgetting that, of course, many listeners would not be familiar with uh, the, the most brutal man on the political scene in Sudan right now. Sudanese activists in Sudan don't call him the leader of the rapid support forces. They actually just simply call him the leader of the Janjaweed. And the reason they do that is that this is a man who was responsible for organizing the mass killings of uh, really h- thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of uh, Darfurians in that in the Darfur War, the Darfur Civil War. Following the Darfur War in 2003, it is for this reason that he is liable to prosecution as someone who is guilty of crimes against humanity, just like Awad Bashir was, because he helped to orchestrate that awful war that led to 200,000 Sudanese being killed and uh, one over 1.5 displaced from their homes. Burhan, it's very important. The, the general right now who's heading the military government following the coup is also someone who was a commander during the Darfur War. He himself is responsible for crimes against humanity because he was, of course, a commanding officer in Darfur alongside with Degalu. Degalu also was then brought in to protect Omar Bashir in the latter years of Omar Bashir's rule in Sudan. And so Hemeti brought his militias, mostly who are from the western parts of Sudan and many, many actually from across the border in Chad, he brought them in to Khartoum, the Khartoum area it is these militias uh, that are the Janjaweed or you know refashioned rebranded into the ra- rapid support forces that are really are the ones who are pe- perpetuating the level of violence that we didn't even see in the following 2008 revolution, except in the Syrian. Extraordinary amount of violence and the invasion of homes. So these are mercenaries, as we call them in Sudan. They are paid uh, to do what they're doing. Uh, right now, they are also uh, been allowed and encouraged to go into the homes of Sudanese in order to basically steal money, assets, in addition to torture. And so they're simply mercenary uh, militias. And this is why Sudanese are explaining to the international community that this particular government is really uh, nothing short of a gang, you know, a group, a coalition of thugs. That is extremely important. Burhan, Hemeti and his militias, and the two leaders of these insurgent organizations that thought that they would lose out from a full transfer of power to civilians. Those two leaders now are hedging their bets and they're actually saying incredibly that they're opposed to the military coup.
0: And that's Professor Khaled Madani speaking with Shahram al-Ramir about the October 25th coup in Sudan and the protest and civil disobedience campaign against the military takeover. We'll hear more of that conversation with Professor Madani and El sadiq Al-Sheikh after a short break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
2: Sadr taking place the day after a visit by the U.S. government's special representative to the Horn of Africa, the timing of the coup appears rather awkward, to say the least. It appears that it's driven by desperation.
3: How do you explain it? Why a coup now? It happened after the U.S. envoy for the Horn of Africa have uh, extensive meetings with Burhan and the Prime Minister Hamdok as well. And he came out in American TV channels and he felt himself betrayed by the generals because they assured him, I guess, almost two days before the military takeover that they will guarantee the transition towards civilian rule and democratization. And Khalid gave us a very good, wider look at the general landscape of political scene in Sudan. But one thing also I want to add to that is by November 19, the leadership of the Sovereign Council, which is divided by military and the civilians, is supposed to be handed to the civilians. And that point, this will explain the awkwardness and whether Burhan and Hemeti themselves have any other way to deal with the mounting pressure on them from the Sudanese people and from their representative, the civilian within the transitional government. So we know that there is other elements. I don't want to complicate the scene, but when a task force or commission is very important that took place within the political scene is called the Commission for Dismantling the Former Regime. And that's what really geared toward uncovering and earthing the political and financial and economic corruptions that are taking place. And everybody knows, including Prime Minister Hamdok, was applauding... They use resilience of supporting this particular commission because within their discovery, that will show to the Sudanese people who are actually implicated in all the crimes that Khalid mentioned in the last 30 years, but also in the last two years of the transition government itself, the role of General Burhan and General Hemeti and other loyalists of the former regime, National Congress Party, and many other corrupt leaders and their relationships to outside interests and power. Those two elements, the transition of the sovereign council leadership to civilians, and that will mean civilian will have control over one, the presidency, second to the executive power, and they will have the time to actually appoint the parliament. So the civilians in general, with all their political difference and ideology, and here I wanna stress what Haile says, Opposition to the military takeover is not for one particular party or group of people. That's almost anonymous from the Sudanese society. We see that inside Sudan and in the diaspora. Very few people that will take the side of the military. I think they didn't have enough time. Even though they've been orchestrating the takeover for a long time, they tried to maneuver through putting impediment on the way of the, the civilian government not to succeed in many issues, one of them, the economic difficulties that faced by the Sudanese people, especially in the black age of the western seaport of Port Sudan, that usually is the only space that products come in and out, Sudan, including medicine, including even sending our oils out or bringing any commodity into Sudan. So all this being manufactured, in my opinion, I think they didn't have another solution except one to wait for what you will become and their fear is exacerbated. The second is to reverse the situation. And that's what they did. Whether their calculation was right or wrong, that's what we will see. And whether it's wise for them to do so, that's another question. But I think the timing was weird. The timing was direct humiliation to the U.S. invoice to the Horn of Africa, especially after the episode in Afghanistan and the withdrawal of the United States with the very unpleasant ending. This signifies that to superpower that few infringes generals that they don't have any holding or even legitimacy, they can literally say we will uphold certain position. And as soon as that envoy leaves the country, they actually uh, do the opposite.
2: Was there also concern regarding the issue of accountability vis-a-vis crimes against humanity committed in Sudan by the military and its, the militia. Was there a concern on their part that those crimes would be investigated, therefore the urgency to have the coup
3: now? Absolutely. No, it is a factor. And it wasn't something hidden. Even for us in the diaspora, we keep hearing news and debate in Sudan that many of the civilians, even though they did not like the partnership with the TMC, Transitional Military Council of the Military Junta, Burhan and Humeti. So they know that the question of accountability of prior crimes during Bashir's time, but also what Halid mentioned earlier, the most important crime committed against the civilians during their sitting. In 2019, in June, that was another brutality that condemned by most of the international community and most of the Sudanese people. And that's when most people who have been even looking kind of with uh, not sympathetic eye, but to say, okay, let's forget what happened in Abbas and we can join military and, and civilians to do something. They became extremely suspicious about uh, the TMC, Transitional Military Council. Because even during the moment of great vulnerability and after they give them promises to the sittings, protesters that there is no crackdown will be inflicted on in them, it actually attack them in the early days of morning was that Monday, which was brutality that is really very hard to describe. So yeah, you're absolutely right. That's one of the factors that the accountability and the commission that I mentioned, dismantling the former regime, financial, political, and corruption, and all that. It was unearthing an, an those, try to answer those questions. Who's responsible for the massacre of June 2019 of the settings, you know, and all fingers <laughs> point to one particular person and one particular militia, General Himitti and his rabbit force uh, militia. Everybody knows that. But that doesn't mean to absolve uh, Burhan because Burhan benefits from let Hameti do the ugly deeds while he partner with him reaping the benefits of presenting himself
1: as the lesser of two
3: evil.
2: Khaled, would you like to add anything to what Sadiq just
1: said? I want to just add another piece of evidence to support Sadiq's argument that they didn't have a choice and uh, al-Sadiq knows this full well. By the middle of September, Burhan and Hemeti decided to follow a scenario that had occurred in other Middle Eastern countries, in particular Egypt. And he did two things that are very important. He allied himself, co-opted, and patronized some ethnic groups around the port Sudan, had them block food, Coming to the Sudanese population. The purpose of that plan was basically to put Sudanese civil society and Sudanese in general under economic distress. The purpose was actually to cut commodities, bread and sugar, coming from our most important port to the households of Sudanese. He, of course, at the time said he had nothing to do with it, that the representatives of the Bija ethnic group and Hadendawa in that region were the ones who were responsible. And he kept uh, saying that it was a civilian leadership that refused used to incorporate them and give them their rights that are due to them. Of course, he had uh, one ally from the Beja Council, the leader there, who basically parroted what he said. Most Sudanese knew that Burhan and Emeti were responsible for this, but of course they denied it. The reason I mentioned that is today Reuters comes out and writes, lo and behold, the port is going to be reopened. Interestingly enough, the port is closed prior to the coup, but after the coup, it somehow miraculously is going to be opened. And in addition to that, food food, uh, specifically bread and sugar now are available in the urban areas in Khartoum and elsewhere. So one aspect of the plan was to put Sudanese in economic distress and social distress in terms of basic foodstuffs uh, not coming in or their prices becoming very, very expensive for the average Sudanese. And another um, thing that he did in combination with that is a two-pronged In alliance with the two insurgent organizations I told you, basically got their supporters a very small number to have a sit-in or wage a sit-in in in front of the Republican Palace in which they accused the civilian government of being weak and corrupt and uh, fermenting divisions in society and calling for the military in Wuhan in particular to take over power. Uh, The idea was to undermine the economic livelihoods of Sudanese, uh, increase their grievances, and then have a small group of people who called for Burhan to save the country from chaos. He was hoping that he would get some kind of alliance to justify him taking over power fully. But what happened in typical Sudanese fashion is three or four days after this uh, sitting in front of the Republican palace, the Sudanese Professional Association helps to organize millions of Sudanese in Khartoum and throughout the country in opposition to the machinations of Burhan, knowing full well that, of course, he was on the verge of actually plotting the coup. So this is why what al-Sadiq said about following that, especially that important protest in, in late October that, uh, unlucky for Burhan at the time, was commemorated the Great Revolution of 1964, our first uh, uh, pro-democracy revolution, uh, had millions basically signaling to Burhan that we know you want to have a military coup, but we are here steadfast in our millions opposed to a military coup and insisting on the implementation of the constitution declaration. The key point of that, of course, is to implement the agenda to see Sudan to a civilian-led or a democracy or full civilian government. It is in the wake of those protests that I believe, as al-Sadiq said, that Emeti and Burhan realized that they would actually have to intervene directly. There was no way to consolidate rule without a military coup. And that point is important just to really be clear about the motivation, as well as the timing of the coup d'etat.
0: And that's Professor Khaled Madani speaking with Shahram Oghamir. We're speaking with Professor Madani and Sadr al-Sheikh about the recent coup in Sudan the disillusion of the country's embattled transitional government and a struggle for democracy in that country. We'll hear more after a short break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
2: Uh, Sadiq Abdul Fattah al-Burhan seems to be attempting to replicate in Sudan what Abdul Fattah al-Sisi did in Egypt in 2013, when his military coup ousted the Muslim Brotherhood government and brought an end to a mass movement that had begun in 2011. Apart from Burhan's sharing the same first name with el sisi and attending the same military school in Egypt, Do you see parallels between the two scenarios in terms of the um, civil society, grassroots mobilization and cohesion versus fragmentation within the opposition?
3: There is a relationship relationship between the two tendencies of the two head of this military junta in Egypt and Sudan. But it's also there is massive difference in terms of civil society organization and resistance in both countries. The Sudanese society have very robust civil society throughout its modern history, even before its independence in 1956, since the late 1930s. So political party ensued and practicing different type of, of resilience, even though most of the major Sudanese political party actually being partnered with the Egyptian political party. You know, you have to remember Sudan and Egypt being under the same crown during uh, colonial time. However, in coming back to our modern time, I think the major difference is he turned again as the Pharisee democratically elected president of Egypt. So that's uh, why all measures are just classic of uh, military coup. And there's another important difference for ideological reasoning or because of the ideology of the President Mercy of Egypt at the time, his uh, Muslim Brotherhood. Many in Egyptian society, unfortunately, and they will regret that later, even within the left in Egypt, in regional power and international power, they did not stand firm with the principle idea of democratization in Egypt. So when the Sisi take over, many regional power, and unfortunately, some voices within the Egyptian society and superpower around the world, they felt relieved from cutting short the journey of Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. In Sudan, that wasn't the case at all. As Khalid mentioned earlier, you know, you have to remember FFC Freedom and Change Coalition have more than 75 political parties, civil society organization, and uh, trade unions, and those are people who have their representative sharing power with the military. So when Burhan in Sudan takes over the power from the civilians, he is not revolting against one faction against others, against the whole entire civil society in Sudan, including their political parties trade unions, and all the other uh, sectors in society, in particular, youth and women and others. So in that sense, there is a difference. However, the trajectory is the same. Both of them, CCA of Egypt, Burhan of Sudan, they seem they are tied to a very particular idea in our region, the region of North Africa, East Africa, and the Middle East, that to influence the new map of the Middle East. And those relationships or alliances has to do with uh, many particular powers, in particular, I will name them for you, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and the State of Israel. Those four powers, they don't even agree among themselves in terms of ideology, but they have very specific interests that align their interests. Whether that was fighting the Iranian influence or they having their civil war in in Yemen or they having their military intervention with the warlord in Libya or destabilizing the Tunisian civil society or hindering the Sudanese. Civil society to move toward democratization, or the control the passage of oil trades from the Indian Ocean through the Red Sea to the Mediterranean. What I'm trying to say here, each one playing different roles, so it's very hard to suggest that is a playbook of Al-Sisi what happened in Sudan. But I think that's miss one critical element. That Sisi in Egypt is a classic military coup, coup d'état. Again, is. Various elected democratic president, whether we agree or disagree with him, that's not the point. But in principles and the shame of the international community and regional power not to stand firm with the Egyptian people. In the case of Sudan, that's not the case. Most of the international community condemned, with the exception, of course, of another autocrat in Moscow of the Russian Federation, or non-interference of another, the second superpower of the Chinese, most power in the world. They literally signal that this is not okay. Turning again is transition toward democracy, especially after the experience in Myanmar or Burma. This is not a thing that you could overlook.
1: Khaled, would you like to add anything to this? Just as Al Sadiq said, that um, there are both similarities and differences. I think that Al Sadiq mentioned two very important differences. Uh, Sudan has had a history of democratic experiments, even though they failed. But as I mentioned, I think on this show before, like other African countries, the history of democratic experiments, actually, it's not the cause, but correlates with the possibility of success of democracy, because it builds uh, not only a democratic political culture throughout civil society, but it allows people to begin to address past mistakes, including electoral institutions. And a lot of the Constitution Declaration has very much to do with the learning process of Sudanese politicians and activists in terms of the past mistakes of Pro-democracy revolution of 1964 and 1985. And then, of course, another thing that Al-Sadiq mentioned is the relative strength of autonomous civil society in Sudan as opposed to Egypt. So those are two very important things. One thing about, about, about Tahrir in Egypt that I remember and recall, because I have, of course, lived in worked and researched and written about Egypt as well, in comparison to Sudan, is that following Tahrir, pro-democracy activists in Egypt wanted to extend the transitional period prior to elections. And the reason for that was very clear. They knew full well that civil society had been clamped down upon for decades, both under Mubarak and Sadat, and some would argue even prior to Sadat as well. There were two elements to that. One of them, the activists in Egypt wanted to have a period where they could strengthen political parties because of the restrictions in law in Egypt against political party activism. Another were restrictions, uh, the NGO law in Egypt and other legislations. And policies really restricted civil society activism. That becomes really important. Many would say that the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, in combination, eventually in alliance with the military, shortened that in order to ensure that they would uh, have a majority in parliament. Um, And what happened, of course, with Mursi is that he overreached the biggest miscalculation. All of that is to say that in Egypt, the division between civil society was much larger between Islamists versus those who did not support Islamists. And that, of course, is real uh, fodder for a military man like Sisi to come as he did and orchestrate and not only increase those divisions, but also declare that he's salvaging Egypt from chaos and in doing so getting a substantial amount of support precisely because of the absence of history of democratization and the restrictions on civil society organization and activism in Egypt. That scenario, that uh, path is what Burhan would love to follow, and this is something Sudanese know full well, and that is why slogans among the protesters, one of the central ones, is that we will not be ruled by the decrees of Sisi, Uh, knowing full well that Burhan would very much like to declare that he is saving Sudan from chaos, racism, and division. As al-Sadiq said, that has not worked because the majority of Sudanese, we know full well, understand that not only is it a ploy, but they're much more cohesive and unified as opposed to their Egyptian counterparts. The indication of that and evidence of that is that to this day, uh, one of the biggest challenges for Burhan is to actually come up with the government. And what he did when he took over, his preference would have been indeed an e- Egyptian scenario. And that would be to bring Hamdok himself back into government as a civilian prime minister, believe it or not, and then have uh, civilians uh, that he would choose and of course have control over to basically be appointed under him in a so-called civilian cabinet. Uh, and from there, he would then so-called oversee a transition to democracy. That has not worked. It did in the case of Egypt because of the reasons that we've a- itemized. It hasn't worked in the case of Sudan so far because of the cohesive kind of opposition in civil society, among civil society groups, youth groups, and political parties to participation in government that they know is a government that is opposed by the majority of people in Sudan. And so what he has done in the past few days, Burhan, is literally try to not tried, but he's actually released former members of the National Congress Party, the Islamists who had ruled Sudan in a dictatorial fashion for three decades, released them from jail, then re-arrested them, put them back in jail because of opposition from external actors, not to mention, I'm sure, Egypt as well. So now he's literally scrambling to find a social constituency or some semblance of constituency to buttress his military coup and the military regime. In contrast, in Egypt, Egypt, and this is unfortunate in my opinion, Sisi was able to find a constituency, at least momentarily, in order to consolidate his regime. This is a struggle, despite all of his, Burhan's hopes to replicate the Egyptian scenario in total, he has not been able to do that, as al-Sadiq said, because of the strength of civil society, and at the same time, this opposition to the former Regime stalwarts. Nevertheless, the ones who have been appointed right now are actually members of the Islamist movement. Burhan's current appointment of the head of the Central Bank is a well-known Islamist who is known to be extremely corrupt, as an example. So that's why their similarities are important, but the differences are really what is making it very difficult for Burhan, at least at this point, to consolidate his military regime.
3: One of the issues also related to foreign policy or foreign relation with neighboring countries is the issues of the Renaissance Dam in Ethiopia one of the hope of Sisi, of course, to have a more alignment in aspiration to both what's happening in Ethiopia and to create more robust opposition, which is to the process of filling the water of the Great Renaissance Dam in Ethiopia by having a friendly and dependent government in Khartoum that will be most likely to side with Egyptian interests or Sisi interests, let's put it that way. So that element also plays a key role for bringing Burhan and Sisi closer to each other. I don't want to bring the outside power, but it's very important for understanding what's happening internally. The role of United Arab Emirates cannot be overstated. That country's relationship with Eritrea dictator, Try to take over from Djibouti to Sawakin to port Sudan all these ports in the Red Sea and they will do whatever it takes. It doesn't really matter if they can align themselves with loyalists even though the ruler of United Arab Emirates, they perceive or they present themselves as anti islamists but they are willing to cooperate with former Islamists or loyalists to the former regime in Islamist party, National Congress party in Sudan, which is full of corruption. And in the idea of corruption, both in Egypt and Sudan, for example, those dictatorial regime before the arrival of Sisi and Burhan, those regimes created part of the elite classes, highly corruptible individuals. And those are willing to bet and do the dirty work as quote-unquote civilians, technocrats, they could come to rescue those generals. And it happened in Egypt, we will see an attempt to happen in Sudan, but that doesn't reflect the sentiment of the civil society in Egypt or the civil society in Sudan. This is the point, Egyptian, they felt also under massive misinformation and disinformation. The Sudanese civil society benefit from seeing that play out in Egypt. So I remember clearly people in Sudan civil society said, watch out for the Egyptian playbook might happen in our country as well. So we are lucky in this sense, plus the maturity of our civil society, but is also to see painfully the great uh, citizen revolutions in Egypt to be thrown under the bus because of miscalculation of uh, Islamists, of Mohammed Morsi and Brutality of Sisi and with the support of many in international community was an unfortunate experimentation that lived very short. And you have to remember, Khalid mentioned this as well. I remember during the early days of the December Revolution, people were discussing the length of the period of the transitional government. I don't want to repeat the past, but Sudan went through two different transitional periods after dictatorships. And they benefit because the learning process, as Harid mentioned, the shorter the period of transition is, most likely it will be a shortcoming of the to achieve the revolution goals of democratization, having that in October 64 and April of 85. So they learn, and there was a, a lot of conversation. My son, for example, I proposed, and I came to your program, I proposed 10 years plan for transition, not only four years or five years, it has to be longer in order to avoid this type of blaming side, because in order to correct the wrongdoing of 30 years, you can't just do it in four years or two years. And that was all along the military junta, the DMC of Burhan and Himiti, they wanted it to, they really were keen to make it shorter between one year to two years. But that plan defeated because they know this will be a gamble. You can't actually get anything done in terms of the major slogan, freedom, peace, and justice. In order to do this, it takes longer. It takes almost two years from the civilian government to just internegotiation negotiation in good faith with the rebel movement and with international community. And they achieve what actually looking for. And that's a very positive outcome. And imagine if they continue for another two years, they might be able to turn around the economic situation and remedy for other social problems in Sudan. So the difference between Egypt and Sudan because the transition period in Egypt cut very short, and that's how they hijacked the space for the civil society in Egypt to reorganize itself in order to face the remnants of Mubarak and Sadat.
0: El Sadiq El Sheikh is the director of the Global Justice Program at the Othering and Belonging Institute at UC Berkeley. He oversees the program projects on corporate power, food systems, forced migration, inclusiveness index, Islamophobia, and human rights mechanisms. He also manages the Shahidi Project and the Nile Project. Khaled Madani is an Associate Professor of Political Science and Islamic Studies at McGill University and the author of the new book, Black Markets and Militants, Informal Networks in the Middle East and Africa. In this book, Professor Madani explains why youth are attracted to militant organizations, examining the specific role economic globalization in the form of out-migration an expatriate remittance inflows plays in determining how and why militant activists emerge. Please join us next week for the second part of this conversation and the latest developments in Sudan. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. <music> Here is the calendar of upcoming events in the Bay Area. Simple as Water, a new documentary from Oscar winner Megan Mylon, chronicles the impacts of war, separation and displacement by taking us into Syrian families' quest for normalcy and through the whirlwind of obstacles to building a new life. The project was filmed in Turkey Greece, Germany, Syria, and the U.S. over the course of five years, and it came to fruition through the joint efforts of a small cruise scattered across the world. Many of those involved behind the scenes are Syrian refugees themselves. Simple as Water will be screened on November 6th in San Francisco International Film Festival doc series and on HBO on November 16th. For more information, please visit sffilm.org and mark your calendar for this year's San Francisco Arab Film Festival, which kicks off November 18th and it will run through November 24th in the Bay Area. The festival opens with Amira by Egyptian filmmaker Mohamed Diab at the Castro Theatre in San Francisco. For more information and ticket reservation, please visit ArabFilmFestival.org. This year's festival will be in person and virtual. If you need more information about these events, you can drop us a line at VOMENA radio at gmail.com.
3: And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa
1: is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley.
0: Mira Nabulsi is our senior producer, our media partner, is a Status Hour podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at radio at gmail.com Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa and thank you for listening. Come out to life. to glory.